Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Brown Girl Green podcast. This is Christy Drutman, where I interview environmental leaders and advocates about the importance of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis. I am changing the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. I am so excited for today's guests. I met them two years ago in 2021, or no, three years ago. Oh my gosh, the pandemic, this is insane. Yeah, so a little bit of background that's really special about our guest today is that we were a part of the inaugural cohort that was the council behind Intersectional Environmentalists, which is an amazing organization focused on intersectional environmental issues, really bringing the voices of Black, Indigenous, and people of color to the forefront of the climate conversation. It's very aligned with what we do here at Brown Girl Green as well. And it was awesome because due to that council being formed, I got to meet Jordan, who's an incredible Indigenous rights advocate, you know, organizer, leader in her community and with the work that she does. Really honored to have her on the show today. And Jordan, I would love if you could introduce yourself to everyone. Wopilatanka, many thanks. Yeah, I'm so happy that, you know, we got to meet in real life and our virtual paths crossing. So hopefully this is just, you know, more to come. So my name is Jordan Marie Brings, Three White Horses, Whetstone. A lot of people know me as Daniel, but I recently got married within the last year. A lot Ooh. has happened. Yes. I have a baby who just turned one, so I, I'm a new mama. But yeah, I'm, I'm the founder and organizer of Rising Hearts. I'm a professional athlete advocate. I'm a filmmaker, storyteller. I am a project manager at UCLA. I am a EDI Jedi consultant working a lot within the running and outdoor industries, but also with other companies and institutions like colleges, universities. But yeah, I, I stay busy <laughs> and that's a lot of what I do. Yeah, no, I can tell. I mean, you are someone like myself who wears so many hats, but it's all very community driven. And I think a yes. big part of what you do is advocating and fighting for indigenous rights, which I think is so beautiful. And I wanted to know if you could tell everyone a little bit more about Rising Hearts and how you came to start that organization. Yeah, so I've known since I was in eighth grade that I've wanted to be an advocate for indigenous peoples. I saw firsthand, you know, just my community and my tribe in central South Dakota, the Laura Bull Sioux tribe. And just saw kind of just like the inequity and equality and just a lot of injustices. But I also saw the beauty, you know, our existence and us thriving and that beautiful reminder to these systems and the governments that tried to eradicate us that we're still here. It's a, a beautiful perspective to see both. And so having that perspective and then moving away from my community and being in an area that was really white and not mm -hmm. diverse and being the only kid of color, I think, for at least a few years until we got to middle school, you know, I just saw another perspective. I saw that's where I was first introduced to racism and experiencing racism and prejudice. And that's when I saw anytime I went back to South Dakota, I saw that racism and prejudice happen there and that it was always there, but I just was never exposed to it or saw it. But it just really motivated me to want to change things for our people and so mm -hmm. that we have better. Mm -hmm. And for me, that meant DC is like the heart of policy, the heart of change, that's where I need to go. So ever since eighth grade, that was my dream. And it, it eventually happened in 2013. 
and got to move to DC and was working for the National Indian Health Board and did a lot of healthcare advocacy and having firsthand experience from my mentors of lobbying on the Hill, also meeting the ignorance within Congress of the crazy questions being asked, do you guys still live in TPs? And just all of these other comments that really kind of made it very clear that there is this narrative that indigenous peoples no longer exist. So that was a really disheartening experience. And after having interned for Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, that whole experience was just very, in my opinion, and experience was just toxic and was very privileged. And here I am, a kid of color, youth of color, who was working a minimum wage job part-time, taking an unpaid internship for this experience Mm -hmm. that was either going to tell me this is going to be my life trajectory Mm -hmm. or it's not. And then sitting in those hearings and briefings and being surrounded by other kids of privilege and with amazing resources and connections, talking about their partying, talking about this, talking about their dad just bought them a condo and here I am struggling. And I was just like, everything's so slow moving and I can't be surrounded by this with no support coming in for someone like me and who who else who else comes with me or after me mm-hmm. so that's what i made the decision to just leave that and so i started working for the administration for for native americans and basically was a grants manager a cheerleader and in supporting indigenous communities and all of the amazing projects that they were proposing and leading and youth led projects and anything from language development to economic development to like youth culture led activities within their programming and so it was just really amazing to see the other side of it. And it's like, I don't have to always be advocating for the bad, which that still always needs to happen because it needs to be made clear and needs to be visible. But we also can be celebrating like all of this amazing that is happening in our communities. And then Standing Rock happened. And that's where the birth of Rising Hearts came. So being in DC, I started supporting my friends who were organizers. That wasn't for me. I didn't want to stand on a soapbox. I didn't want to be the one that was standing in the crowd speaking. I wanted to be behind the scenes. And so I would help and volunteer and just show up to learn. And, you know, this was at the the time of Stop KXL, Reject KXL. And then DAPL came along after that. And KXL was going to actually go through my own homelands and DAPL would too, because my tribe sits on the Missouri River. So if anything were to happen, my community, so many other communities would be impacted. Mm-hmm. So that was a big learning curve for me in terms of my introduction to the climate justice world and all of how everything is all very interconnected and our dependencies on it. And how can we step back from those and reevaluate our own you know, participation in some of these systems? And how can we organize people and educate people on what is happening? So I started supporting and then someone someone knew me as Jordan the runner and that's been primarily my identity and they reached out to me and they were like hey Standing Rock youth are running from Cannonball to Washington DC to oppose the pipeline and bring bring a petition to President Barack Obama can you do something for them and I was like I've never organized anything (laughs) when I was like I how hard can it be and so I was like okay so really naive reached out to some folks and a friend of mine helped me but like we got permitting very last minute like the night before we got police escorts we fundraised money to have food and support for the youth to welcome them we got a land blessing speaker we had some drummers and performers and then we made a route from the supreme court to the army corps of engineer headquarters and that was about a three mile run that we did through the town through the city 
And that was my introduction to being a community organizer. And at the end of the day, it was so amazing the whole day, like it was all centered around the youth. But at the end of the day, I was so wiped, like more tired than my marathon training that I'm doing right now <laughs> of just like your constant, like brain has to be like ahead, 10 steps ahead. You got to account for a bunch of stuff. You're also being responsible for people. And I was just like, I never want to do that again. Like I will volunteer. I will show up. I do not want to be the planner and the organizer. <laughs> but then three weeks later, the dog attacks happened and I got to spend time with the youth and got to know their names. I even met a cousin of mine from my own community and, you know, just really got to know them on a personal level and really got to see the human side of this issue and how important it was to the youth mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. seeing them attacked and seeing other people that I knew attacked on Facebook live because Facebook live was could just you, becoming like a big thing. Could you then, just explain what the dog attacks were for yeah. people who might not know what that that was? Yeah. So we saw this in Alabama during the civil rights movement where the black community was being attacked by dogs by the police and here it happened again in Standing Rock. The community mm -hmm. leaders were going to try and protect a sacred site that was about to be bulldozed. And they were, there was a private security company that was there and they had dogs. And literally in like some photos, like Democracy Now documented some of this and in some of the images and videos, like you could see blood coming out of these dogs' teeth. And so wow. during that time, someone had made like this image putting, I think, I can't remember which year it was in the 60s, but what happened in Alabama and what was happening that weekend. Mm -hmm. It was just so, it's like nothing's changed. And that we were literally being treated like dogs, that we were lesser than, and you can't meaning, meaningfully discuss what is happening and come to a resolution to address these issues. So seeing the youth that I knew and the other people that I knew personally there, seeing them being attacked and treated this way, it just like lit a fire in me. And this mm -hmm. is all simultaneously as I lost my grandfather and he was a big youth advocate. He was a coach. He really paved the way for me in terms of what I care about and what my values are in terms of the next generations. And I was kind of like, at a loss with his loss and like running, he introduced me to it. And I was at this like crossroads of like, I don't even want to run anymore. What is the point? Yeah. Like all of this. And then I happened to turn on Facebook and I saw what happened. And so I took that moment and flipped it into a positive of like, I can continue this work and honor my grandfather's legacy and do more and help support the youth and help support our communities. So that was when I started organizing and leading marches and organizing panels and doing like pop-up protests at the White House or Army Corps or going onto the Hill. And it was so out of my comfort zone. And I, I made so many mistakes speaking. <laughs> I had to do all the research to make sure I was doing it right and saying it right and yeah. making sure that credit was being, you know, given where it was due. And that's like my introduction into community organizing and, and being a community organizer. I also wanted to do that because I saw a lack of representation of indigenous community organizers in DC. And I yeah. saw big organizations, environmental orgs, like doing this work and amplifying DAPL, but not always having an indigenous voice on that mm -hmm. platform. So that's where Rising Hearts came to be. We started collaborating with other indigenous organizers. We co-founded the DC Reinvest Coalition to get the city of DC to divest. There was DC, the Standing Rock organizing group that we collaborated with. And Rising Hearts came in January of 20. 
17 and we did Occupy inauguration. And that was our first action with Indigenous Environmental Network with some of the youth that had come back and then the Indigenous Women's March and then the DC March for Water is Life in March. And yeah, we just kept going and started organizing and really trying to foster intersectionality and not just always having Indigenous voices leading, but doing it with other people who are also going to be harmed, not just by these specific pipelines, but the fossil fuel industry Mm -hmm. and how they're being harmed by other systems that are fueling and funding these projects that are damaging so many communities. And I think getting that message out there of people thinking, oh, well, it's not in my backyard or it's not impacting me, but those are aquifers. Those are sacred resources that Mm -hmm. so many millions of people are benefiting from. And in the end, it is going to reach you. Um, It may not directly, um, but it will impact your life. And I think that's the message that we really were trying to speak to when we were in DC was just trying to bring that greater awareness and providing opportunity for non-Indigenous, non-POC people to be part of this work with us and provide those easy steps to take that first action. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I really love about Rising Hearts is like, it is a community that is really pushing to, to shift the whole ecosystem of how we're viewing, you know, extractive industries, especially the fossil fuel industry and how it's impacted so many communities, especially marginalized communities, especially indigenous communities. And I think it's really great that you all have done such amazing coalition building, both like within with indigenous partners, but also like encouraging even non-indigenous and non-indigenous POC people of color to like get involved. And I think that that's mm-hmm. really I think that's really cool because it's like you're being able to create a new voice or and it's not really a new voice, just like new representation in the movement while also being able to like do that coalition building and like using the resources you all have to also like be a part of that collective. Like it's interesting because it's like it's acknowledging like there needs to be representation for this like contingent, but it's also a bigger part of this bigger collective narrative weaving that ensures that indigenous leadership is there and it's and it's core to the work but it's also in community with other groups who also need to like recognize that and work in tandem together i think that's really exactly that's really cool yeah and that that shift really changed after seeing the murder of george floyd and ahmaud arbery and brianna taylor we saw in 2020 you know kind of this huge i don't know like we saw this uprising not just from people who are directly impacted by systems of oppression and racism, like we live that day to day. Like we know that it's not new to us. It's not new to our community and not to our advocacy, but in the rest of the world, it seemed very new and that's not the case, but we saw this public outcry and commitment that enough is enough, or I didn't know this was happening. I need to do better, or we need to ramp up our commitments of EDI and Jedi, whatever that looks like. But if you're not doing the work internally, first before you're doing the outward facing commitments to really build community and to be able to provide safety for community and safe spaces and to provide platforms and resources to support them in the work that they're doing, it's going to fail. And that's when I wanted Rising Hearts to pivot during that time because we were primarily always centering Indigenous voices while also trying to be a good relative to other communities and help out when we could cross promote when whenever possible but we really wanted to 
live in the way that I was taught. So Matakuya Yasin, we are all related, all my mm -hmm. relations. And I really wanted Rising Hearts to embody that. And for us, indigenous peoples, that is like our introduction or connection to what we call intersectional theory, intersectionality today. But like that was my way of living and being and how I was taught from being raised. And that it goes back generation to generations. Mm. And so I really wanted Rising Hearts to embody that, that we need to be a good relative, not just to each other, but to everybody. And that way of living and being also was the protection of every living thing on this planet, not just our own indigenous communities. And I think trying to bring that back into Rising Heart's purpose and mission is to community build, to really foster intersectionality and intersectional pathways to bring people to come along with us in this ride, but mm -hmm. also to be the ones that are in the seats to unlearn and relearn in this process. And how can we take the resources and connections that we have and share them with other communities who have a similar fight to us and, and what we're doing. We, it may be happening in different ways. We may be going about it in a different way, but it's still impacting our community. We're still having community members being murdered. We're still having people being kidnapped. We're still fighting these injustices, you know, across racial, social climate, you know, avenues. And so that's something that I really wanted Rising Hearts to change and be hopefully a leader among many who I see are now doing the same thing of yeah. trying to bring community together because if we still remain siloed within our own advocacy work, we're not listening to each other. Mm -hmm. We're not learning from each other and we're preventing each other from being able to progress towards that better and thriving future for the next seven generations. And so I just hope that, you know, more continue to do that and that we can have that holistic perspective while always still saving space and holding space for our communities that we come from. But I think one of the solutions to climate, you know, beauty and the thriving future of our existence, I think that that means we have to come together. Like mm -hmm. we truly have to come together. And I truly believe grassroots is the power and that's where we have the biggest impact for change when we can push the leaders who are supposed to be representing us. And it's going to take a lot of pushing. It's going to take a lot of effort. But I truly think that when we can mobilize and activate together that we can and agitate, we can really make that change happen. Yeah, no, I love all of that. I think that's a big thing when it comes to these. Yeah, I, I think definitely like in the past few years, there was like a big reckoning of like, all marginalized groups got screwed over in a lot of ways by this system, but particularly black yeah. and indigenous people. And I think it was this interesting moment of like, you know, how do we unite together while also honoring the pain and the grief from our particular communities and like what our particular communities are going through. And I think that's a difficult level of consciousness to straddle with in some ways. Like I'm sure maybe you've experienced even in your own cultural groups. I know I have in the API community where it's like, oh, but if we unite with everyone, then it's like we're neglecting our community or we don't view that like what is happening to us is actually going to be taken as seriously as these other groups. And it creates all this like internal division, mm -hmm. even amongst marginalized communities together, because then we're all you know, if like the only thing that unites us is like not being white people, I feel like there's, there has to be these layers of like, <laughs> there is like anti-indigenous, anti-blackness, yep. even within, you know, 
API communities and like other, you know, POC communities that needs to be addressed. And I know like even in the indigenous community, there's forms of anti-blackness and like there's just all these layers to it. So I can just tell that like you've had this deeper, you know, reckoning with understanding like there needs to be love, there needs to be collective movement together while also grieving and recognizing the harm and the pain that's been caused to your community. Yeah. As we all do. Well, it's I all a symptom. It's all a symptom. Yeah, exactly. And I, I love, I just love everything you just shared. So I just, <laughs> reiterating back, I, f- I feel the same way where it's like we have to straddle that balance of love and grief. And I feel like Rising Hearts is like an entity that is grappling with that in a way and a philosophy, which I think is really beautiful. So just love that for you. It's amazing. Yeah. You just had a lot of rich stuff in there about your journey and like just so much of it resonated. Like I also did unpaid internships back in the day when like a lot of this work just wasn't valued in terms of like Mm -hmm. being a leader in thinking intersectionally in a lot of ways in this space. It, it was this interesting time, like pre, you know, when you all started your organization, like I was also, you know, in the beginnings of building Brown Girl Green around around that time too, like 2016, 2017, 2018. And it, it, it was this interesting moment where a lot of us who understand as bridge builders that we have to navigate a lot of these spaces, like we took on things like unpaid internships and recognize these disparities of seeing these like mainstream you know, political lobby groups or think tanks or even big green nonprofits getting so much of the funding. And recently, mm-hmm. you know, the amazing Dorsetta Taylor, who is an EJ or environmental justice like leader and activist and advocate and professor, she's just amazing, released this report showing that like you see all of these big mainstream green nonprofits getting tons of funding and then you combine all of like the BIPOC environmental justice groups and we're just lumped together like bam like compared to like one budget of one mainstream you know budget like a WWF Sierra Club whatever and I Mm -hmm. I find that really amazing and astounding and it and it trickles down into the mindset of like scarcity right because there is a scarcity where it's like those of us that are doing a lot of this work to advocate for our communities are pit against each other due to lack of resources and funding. And the system is super competitive. The system is designed that way. Right. And so it's like, then it's like, Oh no, you're not doing the work. You are doing the work. I I'm going to be with, and it's just interesting because then it's like, meanwhile, we've been in these spaces with, with especially other like white folks, frankly, who have, They just get the funding. They get access to all Mm -hmm. of these things. Meanwhile, we're all fighting over the scraps. You know what I mean? And so anyways, I just, everything you shared earlier, I just wanted to like echo back that like it is really frustrating. And I think it must have not been easy like running this organization with like a lot of those different external pressures to figure out how do you find funding? How do you feel the agency to actually speak on the issues that might be controversial because you're Mm -hmm. worried is that going to impact your funding but i feel like you've been able to operate in a way in integrity to make sure that the issues you really care about are actually put out there and so before i dive into a little bit more on that i just want to know like how have you grappled with that with like creating an organization of like you know not necessarily where do you get your funding from but like more of like how have you grappled with like having the agency to stick to your integrity in your community while also knowing that like 
there's all these weird pressures when it comes to funding and things like that. How have you grappled with that? I'm just curious. I mean, it's an everyday struggle, you know, Rising Hearts at the beginning was just completely all my free time and was something that I just really cared about. So it all came out of my own pocket or like my best friend's pocket and we did it together. But over the last couple of years, we've now gotten like our fiscal sponsorship. So we're able to start applying for some funding, but we've received like small micro grants. And that's basically what helps to do like our programming is like from Patagonia or Arcteryx. But I would say 85% of the funding comes from community. It comes Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. a majority of all of the virtual in-person run walk events that we host. I think we just finished our 28th one since June of 2020. And we have recipients of every distance that we host for everyone. And every run has a theme, has an awareness campaign connected to it. It has resources to learn from, but every distance registration fee that gets donated to community and to our recipients that we select. And so primarily right now, Rising Hearts just cares about giving back into community and having community feel like they're part of that. So every time we have a run, we get to announce like how much we fundraise and how much that our recipients received. And Rising Hearts always takes like the smaller portion. But my goal eventually is to, you know, get some grants, have it be fully be a nonprofit and would love to pay myself you know I'm this is like all this is my other child like this is my first child and so I would love to be able to do this work every single day and also be compensated for it but like I said I'm I work UCLA full-time as a project manager grants manager and that's like what gives me my health insurance that's what helps support my family yeah and rising hearts is all other hours of the day when I can fit it in but we do have like a part-time coordinator working with us. We work with a lot of different teachers and advocates. And so we make sure that all of the funding that we do have and receive is that we're compensating everyone fairly and what they Mm -hmm. deserve. So no one ever does anything for free for us. And that's always, you know, it's good to be in that seat, but in terms of the longevity of rising hearts, and especially now that we're having a production arm of creating storytelling, we definitely want to make this like long lasting and sustainable. So we have some some ideas of how we're going to do that. Yeah, no, I love that. And I mean, I've learned so much just from your platform. I mean, you were actually one of the first people that I actually learned about the concept around murdered and missing indigenous women, because you had a really big campaign about that in 2020, if I remember. And I remember Mm -hmm. you posting about it. And that was the first time I ever even learned that that was happening in in the world and I would love if you could just explain to people a little bit more about the current situation around murdered and missing indigenous women because I feel like you've really educated a lot of people about it and I just think folks listening definitely need to learn more about it yeah so the epidemic and international silent crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women girls two spirits and our relatives has been ongoing since time immemorial. Like Mm. a lot of people think it's new today, but it's been a continuous thing since 1492. And, but now in this new era of social media, we are starting to see it more and it's actually served as an incredible platform for amplification and visibility. But this injustice is happening. There are a bunch of things that perpetuate. We have systems of oppression. We have racism and prejudice that you know, Indigenous peoples are experiencing every single day. We have this mentality, especially coming from non-Indigenous peoples, mainly white folks, Mm. that just think of us as lesser than, 
the narrative that indigenous peoples are no longer here, that mm -hmm. they only belong in books, which are incredibly whitewashed and romanticized. Mm -hmm. And, or in the narratives of film in old Westerns that indigenous peoples are not a monolith, that we are not mm -hmm. just lumped into one group. We are indigenous peoples, but we are our own thriving communities. And we have very, very many things in common, but very, very different in a lot of other ways. We have other movies like Pocahontas, just for everyone, that's not her real name. Matoaka is her real name, but that is a Disney movie that is incredibly romanticized and hypersexualized of an indigenous youth mm -hmm. who we consider to be our first Me Too and our first MMIW. Mm -hmm. And we also can contribute, you know, how we, how mainstream media and, and the society hypersexualizes indigenous women. We believe that that also is a con contributing factor to the high fetishization of Indigenous women, to the fantasies of Indigenous women. And when mm -hmm. those fantasies are no longer serving its purpose, then sadly that comes with acting out on these behaviors. And sometimes that acts out and leads to homicides or violence and sexual assault. But the awareness of this epidemic really began with First Nations people in Canada. They have a highway, Highway 16, called the Highway of Tears. A lot of Indigenous women and peoples have either gone missing from that highway because they were hitchhiking or they were trying to get to a nearby community. And, and sadly, in, in that time, there just wasn't reliable transportation and buses and that sort of thing. But you also found them on the highway. And so wow. this started raising alarms to the communities and to the family members who were trying to bring visibility to this issue. And so finally, I did get Canada to call this a genocide, a cultural genocide, and addressing this issue. And now wow. United States has always been a little bit behind in terms of the advocacy and the policy and kind of a little bit faster action. But now we are in a space where we're finally giving visibility to this issue and this epidemic. And it helps when you have Secretary Deb Holland in the Department of Interior who has proposed the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples Unit and other amazing community advocates, families and leaders, organizations that are now proposing, you know, like Savannah's Act, Hannah's Act, Not Invisible Act. You have the red alert system, which was just implemented in the state of Washington, which is like an amber alert, silver alert, but it's a red alert for indigenous peoples when they go missing. Mm. And one of our hopes in, in terms of some of the policy that we're helping to support through Rising Hearts and myself is how can we nationalize the red alert system? Hopefully that can help be a preventative measure or at least have these stories that are so scary and heartbreaking when our relatives go missing that hopefully if we have the system in place, that we can at least find them and get them before anything else bad happens. Mm -hmm. But this issue is happening everywhere. And a lot of the misconceptions that people think about when they hear, hear about this, they think it's a reservation issue. A majority of Indigenous peoples don't live on reservations. They actually mm. live in urban and more rural communities. And so this isn't just a reservation issue, but the, the struggles with fighting for justice for their loved ones and their families is really hard because you have jurisdictional loopholes when it does happen, when it's a crime that happens on a reservation. Can you explain? Um, because, yeah, can, yeah, I'm yeah. curious about that. I didn't know that. Yeah. So indigenous communities, tribes, nations, we are considered our own sovereign nations. And the federal government has a federal trust responsibility to be able to support us and that has been severely lacking with mm -hmm. every treaty been broken ever since the first one. But this jurisdictional loophole that happens. So when a crime happens on tribal lands, 
tribes can't prosecute a non-Indigenous offender. Mm -hmm. They basically get removed from the community, but it didn't happen on state lands or federal Mm -hmm. lands until it's a homicide, then the FBI and the federal government would then get involved. Mm -hmm. But because there are these jurisdictional loopholes of counties, of sovereign nations, who and whose jurisdiction really is it really, and whose responsibility is it really, I think when it's at the stake of someone being missing or someone found murdered, it's everybody's responsibility to Mm -hmm. participate and take action. And that's where we're seeing it severely lacking with law enforcement agencies. Law enforcement agencies are operating a lot on institutionalized racism, racism against indigenous communities. When families come to law enforcement to report their loved ones missing, they are basically met with stereotypes of, oh, they're out just drinking. Oh, they're out partying. Oh, they ran away. They'll be back. Or they just don't take any sort of interest. Or if they Mm -hmm. do, they'll take a report and that's that. Mm-hmm. primarily a lot of the burden and the responsibility sadly falls on the families to mobilize and activate the community to start searching for their loved ones. And oftentimes in the stories that I've heard, it's the families that do end up finding their loved ones. Yeah. And if the police and law enforcement had been involved and taken it seriously from the get-go, then maybe their loved one could have been found much sooner if they had access to those resources mm-hmm. and to have that support. It's the families that are financially raising like money to support these search efforts, to bring in private investigators, to support the lawsuits that potentially may happen or being in, in the justice system and trying to fight for justice. There are just so many different complicated layers that just makes it yeah. so difficult for a family to not have to be involved, that they should only either be grieving and taking that time to process or looking for their loved ones, and they don't need to be dealing with everything else because law enforcement and other agencies should be prioritizing these cases Mm -hmm. and making sure that they are doing everything possible to support them. Another example, Sovereign Bodies Institute, they work with law enforcement agencies now that if if a family reported a loved one missing, and if that law enforcement officer wasn't careful enough, if they don't check the specific box American Indian, Alaska Native, or Native American, however it may be listed, it defaults to Caucasian. So not only are the families fight really wow. hard just to search for their loved one or have justice, but it becomes three times harder. Their, their, their loved one goes missing in life, they go missing in the media, and they go missing in the data. And that's something that, sadly, the government needs data <laughs> to be able to take quick, swifter action Mm-hmm. to take this more seriously. And that's, in my opinion, that's not something that like we should be relying on. I think yeah. we should be relying on the testimonies and the statements of the families and survivors mm-hmm. and the organizations that are saying that this is a real urgent issue and crisis that is happening. We can't be waiting for another missing persons po- poster. We can't be waiting for another funeral to contribute yeah. to this data that you need to make this urgent for, for you to act on. So yeah, it's, it's so complicated and there are so many different layers to it, but that is primarily of what this Mm -hmm. epidemic is and the movement that began in in Canada with First Nations peoples and how it's grown. But I also want people to know that it extends beyond colonial borders, that this is happening in North, Central, South America, all Eagle and Condor, all of our Indigenous relatives. It is happening to Indigenous communities all around the world where fossil fuel extraction is happening, where colonialism has arrived at those shores. Like it expands into so much more. Yeah, and 
Yeah, I mean, I think for people who don't know, from the survivors who have actually survived becoming, you know, actually like murdered and, you know, all these things, from what you know, like what are some of like the driving factors on like why this happens from what you've observed, at least from what survivors have said? I know it's very complex, but just to dive in, if like, you know, I'm just trying to wrap my head around like how this can even happen. It's crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, it's tied to, you know, in systems of oppression, to racism, to these stereotypes, to indigenous peoples. And this is this, the frustrating part that I see coming from just wearing my indigenous identity is that when we talk about like equity and justice, yeah. sometimes still even indigenous peoples aren't included in that fight. Like we still get left out a lot of the time. And like, we have to remember that like, we were thriving communities in the millions before settler colonialism arrived here. Mm-hmm. And we were, it just, it really bothers me that that doesn't get included in a lot of the discussions, but it's because of colonialism. It's because of racism. It's because these governments created these policies to eradicate us or to relocate us, to put us in to areas across the nation that they were hoping would be unlivable, Mm -hmm. but here we are, we're still living there and we're Mm -hmm. thriving in those ecosystems because we know how to live with the lands and Mm -hmm. live with community. They didn't count for that, but (laughs) it's just a lot of factors, you know, it's sadly, it just sounds like to me in every story that I have heard, it's just like this, this need, this colonial mindset of dominance Mm -hmm. and knowing that indigenous women and just women of color need to be dominated wow. and that they are lesser than mm-hmm. that they mean nothing that they are disposable that indigenous mm-hmm. peoples people of color are disposable that we don't have the right to have everything that they do or to thrive to exist in these systems today and to be successful you know all of these policies that have been created were to keep us down and yeah. i think that's just those are all contributing factors and Sadly, it's just like this intergenerational racism that exists that gets passed down. That's something that we have to address. And like, that's something that like, I'm trying to make sure that my little baby like knows and have these discussions, even though I know he knows what none of it means, but it's like, I'm trying to introduce it to him very early on. But, you know, I think there are just so many contributing factors, but like really at the root of everything, colonialism, what it creates, that conquering mindset, the dominance, the racism, systems of oppression and polarizing polarizing our communities to keep us separate from each other and to have this infighting, to have this lateral oppression, to perpetuate oppression Mm -hmm. Olympics Mm -hmm. and all of these other issues that come from it. Yeah. I mean, there's just been such systemic disenfranchisement, especially of indigenous peoples in this country. I mean, we live on stolen land. Like there's been mass genocide of indigenous peoples in this country. And I think people are just still uncomfortable just saying that it's like, it's yeah. just a fact. Like there's not there's not an opinion about that. And I think yeah. I think it just starts with that basic acknowledgement that I think America's like, well that's in our past. We it had to be done. It's like, no, this yeah. this was done and it continues to have impacts. And I think people struggle to have those those understandings that these systems are still happening today and we're seeing it 
in present day missing and murdered indigenous women because maybe we don't know all the driving factors whether it be poverty racism fetishization as we're saying with women getting kidnapped Mm -hmm. or murdered all these things and then not having any data to trace them but we know that the legal system and the economic system is not set up for indigenous women to be cared for or supported in this country. They're only supported by their community members, as you're saying, who have to literally crowdfund to even get people to pay attention to do a search party. That's ridiculous. That's insane. Whereas like, I mean, no shade, but like when we heard that one story, forget her name, of that, that white Instagram influencer who went missing, she got- Gabby Petito. Yeah, Gabby Petito. Yeah, Gabby Petito, I'm like trying to remember. Missing white woman syndrome. Missing white woman syndrome, you know, found. And then you had 700 indigenous cases in that state Mm. of people missing. Mm Mm-hmm that got no attention compared to what Gabby got. So we have to, and like, yeah, either way, it's an injustice. Like we don't want anyone going missing. Of course. We have to look at the systems that are unfair in how we have to make sure that everyone has a fair and equal opportunity to have their story told, to amplify the stories, to support the families. But yeah, you know, it's like, it, it sucks. And it just it, it it makes it super frustrating for our communities because here we are putting in the work every single day trying to get support trying to find our loved one and then you see it all happen within a day for someone else for someone mm-hmm. who has resources the family has resources and privilege that the systems today have prevented us from having what i was saying is i think we just need to to be okay with being uncomfortable and asking ourselves those questions and understanding the consequences of how things come to be and questioning the process. But that is something that we want community to learn about is that this intersection of climate justice directly is connected with the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous peoples. And that one of, I think, one of the supporting solutions that we keep talking about is to live in kinship with the lands is to live in kinship with each other. Mm-hmm. And that is, we need to live in reciprocity. And that is, I feel like because of capitalism and colonialism that has diluted that connection. And I think mm-hmm. we always once had that connection, mm-hmm. but over time and as we've evolved, we lost that. And I think that is yeah. a relationship, a kinship that we need to get back to, not only with ourselves, not only with the lands, but with each other. But what are some other resources or ways people can get involved with understanding murdered and missing Indigenous women, understanding how to tap into getting active with Indigenous rights issues? Are there some resources that you could suggest and ways that people can donate and support your work? Yeah, so people can go to our website, www.risinghearts.org, and click on all of our tabs. I guarantee you, you're going to learn something from each and every one of them. But our No More Stolen Relatives tab page has all the resources that we keep track of for you to learn more about this epidemic, but also not only as it intersects with climate justice, but also as it intersects with the legacy of boarding schools and residential schools. So hopefully you can learn from that. We list out organizations, advocacy orgs, and other efforts that you can click on, learn from, and also donate to. You can also be part of the May 5th Running for Justice Run Walk, because the last couple of years we've raised like nearly 70 nearly $80,000 that we've been able to donate back into these heartworking advocacy groups and the families that are, that we work with. So we have that and that is an opportunity, but, you know, also follow us on Instagram 
at rising underscore hearts. And we're always trying to amplify, you know, not only the partners that we work with, but also just people that we learn from that we feel like our community and the people that visit our page can also learn from too. So we're always cross-promoting anything that we can, and that's a great opportunity and a tool to learn from. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for educating me and the audience about these issues happening currently in Indigenous communities. And as you mentioned, these aren't a monolith. It's really important for people to understand who are the Indigenous communities in your area, the Indigenous land that you live on. I recommend Native Lands to understand. It's a it's a website and there's also an app, I believe, mm-hmm. where you can check it out, Native Land, to understand the Indigenous land that you live on and occupy, check it out. And that's a good way to start understanding how to support, donate, really just like support indigenous communities on the ground. It could be donating your time, your resources, your money, amplifying these issues around MMIW. And yeah, just staying aware and educating your friends and family. So that way these issues don't go underground anymore. So thank you so much, Jordan, for your enlightening spirit your philosophies on how you navigate being a community organizer and really just really walking the walk of the work that needs to be done to protect this planet so thank you so much for joining us on the brown girl green podcast today and for everyone listening make sure you subscribe to the brown girl green podcast wherever you get your shows and subscribe to the brown girl green podcast youtube channel and the new brown girl green podcast instagram at brown girl green podcast thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode thanks everyone thank you all so much for joining another episode of the brown girl green show i super appreciate you sticking around and learning and listening from this amazing episode Check out Jordan at rising underscore hearts on IG. Make sure to also, if you care deeply after listening to this episode about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, um, definitely um, check out niwrc.org where they raise awareness on May 5th as the National Day of Awareness of Missing and and Murdered Indigenous Women. Um, You can also donate uh, to folks advocating for that cause at mmiwusa.org. And as always, uh, definitely appreciate any support of the Brown Girl Green podcast, um, subscribing and listening to wherever you get your shows. You can also contribute to my Patreon or just subscribing here on YouTube helps me out. Um, and follow the new Brown Girl Green podcast Instagram page at Brown Girl Green Podcast. Every follow really makes an impact. So that way we can keep doing this show and bringing on incredible guests for you all to learn from. Thank you again for checking out another episode of Brown Girl Green, and I will catch you on the next episode.